What do people think about breast cancer that's wrong? What's a big misconception that you're always dealing with? Oh, the biggest misconception is literally, oh, you know what? Breast cancer doesn't run in my family. That's not our thing. I'm not at risk for it. And like totally false. Nothing could be further from the truth. Upwards toward 90% of all breast cancer on planet Earth has nothing to do with inherited genetics or having a strong family history. Ready to live at the higher vibrations where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, it's Robin Openshaw and welcome back to the Vibe Show. I know we've done a few episodes lately about imaging for detection of breast cancer and breast implant illness and some other related topics. But today I'm bringing in my new friend, Dr. Christy Funk, who is a board certified breast cancer surgeon. And she and her husband are co-founders of the Pink Lotus Breast Center in Beverly Hills. So she's a standard of care doctor, and that's not the usual around here, besides my friend Tony Yoon, who is a plastic surgeon. Um, This is we had one other integrative surgeon, didn't we, talking about uh, breast imaging. But um, she does breast surgery all day, every day. And she also is really trained in minimally invasive diagnostic and treatment methods for all kinds of breast disease. But she is Cheryl Crow's doctor. And she is Angelina Jolie's doctor. So you can read between the lines there. So she actually practices in Beverly Hills, which which explains that. And last year she came out with a book. I love the title of it. It's Breasts, the Owner's Manual, Every Woman's Guide to Reducing Cancer Risk, Making Treatment Choices, and Optimizing Outcomes. And when I was talking to her in Oregon, she told me that her book has already in one year been translated into like 20 different languages. She's also in the last uh, two and a half years gone 100% vegan after studying what is the best cancer preventative diet. And she arrived conclusively at the uh, idea that animal products are cancer causing and plants are cancer preventing. So she's a graduate of Stanford University as an undergraduate, and then she went to UC Davis School of Medicine to get her medical degree. She did uh, residencies in Seattle um, and a fellowship at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. And so she's an amazing surgeon who A-list celebrities are seeking out. But what's really interesting about Dr. Christy Funk is that she's getting more and more interested in prevention and in helping women upstream rather than just when it's time for a mastectomy. So welcome to the Vibe Show, Dr. Christy Funk. Hey, Robin. I'm so happy to be here. Well, you're super busy and it's very kind of you to take a few minutes for us. Um, We've been really deep lately on the Vibe Show with several episodes from your colleagues around the country on breast implant illness. We've talked about breast cancer imaging because there's quite the ferocious debate about that. So I probably won't go super, super deep with you on on those, but I kind of want to talk to you about your take on what we need to stay out of your office. And I know that you, you really care about women, so you're not just trying to drum up business for more mastectomies because women are terrified. They're terrified of breast cancer. And I have a feeling you're going to tell us some things today that might contradict other interviews I've done here on the Vibe Show. And I don't care. We we just want the truth. We want your take. We had Sidney Singer talk about bras and a connection there that he believes his research has a link between um, bras and breast cancer. Curious what you think about that if you've dived into it. Um, I know there's other people who are really, really critical of his research. I'd love to talk to you about diet because you're one of the few surgeons who even acknowledges that there's a link and who's actually studied it, bothered to take the time to to really dive into the prevention aspects. So I just want to thank you for stepping outside of just doing breast surgeries to ask why. Why are all these women that I'm sure you've grown to care about getting breast cancer and how how we can decrease that number? So Let's start start with just how'd you become a Beverly Hills plastic surgeon? Well, not plastic, breast cancer surgeon, right? I do the I do the oncology part. Okay, so you didn't get like the board certification in plastics. No. No, I'm a surgical oncologist. So very very specific to breast surgery. Okay. So I'm a breast surgical oncologist. And how did you get so interested in that? So 
this is funny. I did my surgical residency in Seattle and that time um, was filled with laparoscopy where they do, you know, surgery through tiny little portholes and watch it on a camera, but it was brand new. So literally my attendings would push me out of the way to learn themselves. So I never learned it. It was so spanking new. So I knew that was the future of surgery was to do laparoscopy, thoracoscopy. So I wanted to do a fellowship in minimally invasive surgery. So I'd be prepared for my future. And I scoured the country and decided on the best one for me at Cedar sinai Medical Center. So I arrive all gung-ho about the esophagus and the stomach because those were my favorite organs. And the director of that looked at me and said, so when you interviewed, I forgot to tell you uh, what you're gonna do with your career. You're gonna run the breast center here. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> um, but in all truth, he gave me an option to transfer to their breast cancer surgical fellowship instead of the MIS minimally invasive one I was doing and said, you know, basically he didn't say this, but I could see that the breast center at Cedar sinai was run by five men over 50 and they clearly needed some estrogen over there and they hadn't found any people in the country that were working out for them. So he literally offered me the directorship on a platter if I would do the fellowship. But to be honest, at that moment, high off of my five years of training where I could put your heart literally on bypass in 40 minutes after cracking your chest open, I was like, breast surgery? That's easy. <laughs> so I had to do some soul searching, realize that it was a point of pride for me to want to be technically challenged. But after thinking it through, there's no woman that ever sees me that thinks, oh, she's just a breast surgeon. Like this has become such a passion for me. And God knew what he was doing when he directed me to that fellowship and that directorship. So I stayed at Cedars for seven years. And then my husband and I launched our own standalone breast center in Beverly Hills in 2009. You know, I can't imagine all the things that run through your head when you get the breast cancer diagnosis, but I would imagine that I would feel much more calm and reassured if somebody on the home team was giving me my advice and maybe even doing a surgery. What what do you find that, uh, what was it even like to work with women who've just been diagnosed with breast cancer? Is it like increased your compassion and what's, what's that done? It's increased my compassion for others and for the struggles they go through. It's widened my eyes to the beautiful resilience that women display more often than not. And it's for the time being made me grateful for my own health and my family's health because my immediate family is completely well and functional and we don't have advanced cancer to battle every day. And it makes me appreciate eyes that see and legs that walk, you know, because you do take those things for granted until you get sideswiped by the threat of death and you realize that you are not invincible and that mortality is, you know, life is finite for us all. What I've loved most about my career is the opportunity to come alongside a woman in what she perceives to be her darkest, scariest, and loneliest moment, um, feeling often confused and then misunderstood by those around her as she tries to navigate all these difficult decisions. And for the women who choose me to hold their hand and guide them through that darkness until they see the light, that has been my reason for being. I really, between my job, which doesn't feel like one, and between the revelations of writing my book, Breast the Owner's Manual, which you alluded to at the top, has changed my perspective on how much control we have over this disease. And it has radically altered the degree of hope and empowerment that I am able to impart to these women who trust me with their care. So this is basically my assignment in life is to preach this message of maximal risk reduction or recurrence reduction for those already affected by breast cancer. And so the sooner everybody just does what I say, the sooner I might be able to get a different assignment. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as everybody just does what you say, we're going to dig into that because you actually talk a lot about prevention, which I've never um encountered a breast surgeon who does that. And I want to get into that. But what do people think about breast cancer that's wrong? What's a big misconception that you're always dealing with? Oh, the biggest misconception is literally, oh, you know what? Breast cancer doesn't run in my family. That's not our thing. I'm not at risk for it. And like totally false. Nothing could be further from the truth. So it is true 
that some people do have family histories laden with breast and ovarian cancer, which heightens our suspicion that they carry one of these inherited genetic mutations like BRCA, BRCA, or PALB2, et cetera. So when you have an inherited mutation, yes, your risks are astronomically higher than every woman walking, which is one in eight before you layer in some risk factors, right? So all of us, one in eight, were born with that risk. And then about five to 10%, and that's the shock, only five to 10% of all people with breast cancer can blame it on an inherited genetic mutation. And in point of fact, 87% of women with breast cancer don't have a single first degree relative with breast cancer. So that shocks people to realize that upwards toward 90% of all breast cancer on planet earth has nothing to do with inherited genetics or having a strong family history. So that begs the question, well, what does it have to do with? And my deep dive into tons of nutritional science and lifestyle medicine has revealed that it's largely diet, nutrition, alcohol, exercise, obesity, hormone replacement therapy, emotional stressors, and environmental toxicities that contribute to breast cancer. And the awesome thing about that crazy long list is that every single one of those has to a greater rather than lesser degree um, is able to be controlled by our choices. Every time we lift fork to mouth, every time we decide what to wear, how to think, how to breathe, how to love, we are either moving toward cancer or away with every choice. Okay. I pay lots of attention to the published literature, probably less than you, but I pay a lot of attention to it. And I doubt that we could even back up whatever opinion we give to this question with actual science, but what do you think is a bigger deal? The way you live your life, being forgiving, peaceful, um, kind, not indulging in tons of anger and conflict, or how organic and plant-based your diet is? Which one's a bigger deal? Diet. Mm, interesting. Well, let's talk about diet then. Uh, I think you kind of gave us like bad news and good news. Bad news, even if nobody in your family's got breast cancer, you could still totally be at risk um, for diet and lifestyle factors. Breast cancer rates are going through the roof. That's really depressing. However, the flip side of that is, I love that you turned it sunny side up, is that that means you can have some control over it. Okay, so what is the best diet for breast cancer prevention? Hands down, the best diet is a whole food plant-based diet overloaded with fruits and vegetables, legumes, beans, peas, lentils, nuts, and 100% whole grains. Drinking lots of green tea and other teas and water and minimizing or eliminating alcohol. That's your snapshot. Okay. And these days, there's a lot of debate about what whole foods plant-based even means. In fact, I had a colleague who told me that 50% meat uh, is plant-based as long as the other 50% is like you said, greens, vegetables, fruits, legumes, nuts and seeds. Um, what it, what is it? What does that mean to you? Because I find even like the ketogenic diet people think they're eating a plant-based diet. I feel like that term's been hijacked by everybody. Like, okay, that's the one thing we absolutely know that nobody debates, except for maybe the carnivore diet people, but they're the fringe, that we all need to eat a lot of plants. So for cancer prevention, where do you land on that? Like 100% vegan? Is 80% plant plants a plant-based diet? What do you think? I think to the degree that you make a change toward more plant-based eating, you are knocking down your cancer risk. I myself have always been Miss Little, straight-A student, got all the questions right and the extra credit too. So when I did my deep dive into nutrition and realized the dramatic health benefits of plants and the astounding illness-causing reaction to consuming animal protein and animal fat, I myself, my husband and three sons, went 100% vegan. So I believe that's the best diet, but I don't think you have to get an A++ to live a healthy life. So if you're having mostly cheeseburgers and fries and overly processed foods and tons of refined sugars and tons of bacon and beef and chicken and fish all day long, and then butter on top of your cheese on top, you know, et cetera. And you just mm, maybe have 21 meals a week. You make seven of them, one a day, a totally plant-based meal. And then of the other two meals that day, you purposefully add an extra fistful of spinach or leafy greens onto the plate. 
whoa, you just took a D to a B minus. And I'm thrilled. Yeah, I think you and I have a similar take on it, which is that incremental improvement is improvement. And, you know, even though, you know, I think people who have followed me for years might be surprised to know that I don't eat animal products and haven't for many, many, many years. Can't say I never, never do, but it, I might go months without eating any animal products. And I should mention that you and I actually met in person at Ocean Robbins retreat where you were a speaker and I was his guest there. And he very much advocates for people eating more plants and less uh, less animal products. And you practice what you preach. And how does that go with raising triplet sons? Oh my gosh, they are a delight to be around in this new vegan venture of ours. So we're coming up on, it's two and a half years of 100% whole food plant-based. And I would say they are the biggest advocates. They are so cute. We will go say to Whole Foods and we'll be shopping. And then Justin, just the other, he's pulling me over. Come here, come here, mom, 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 right? And I come over to that like ode to the gods of cheese, that whole central massive tower of otherwise gooey, delicious, amazing cheeses that I used to have a whole section in the fridge that was like mom's therapy drawer keep out with five-year-age Gouda, Manchego, the Brie, et cetera. He's like, mom, come here, look. And then he whispers to me, they don't know. Oh, <laughs> I was like, all right, I've got it. I've got it in this kid. He's like, mom, I'm telling you, so-and-so has Lunchables every single day. She is so going to get diabetes. <laughs> They get it. They get it. I had um, a revelatory moment. I did a deep dive, as I mentioned a few times, into all this nutritional science. Specifically, though, you have to realize as a doctor, the all of us are so busy. So we go through med school. We go through residency. I also did a fellowship. So that's, uh, I can do math, 10 years after college of nonstop, like no holidays, no breathing. I just head in this medical world immersed, fully immersed. And we didn't get a lick of nutrition, not a word, maybe the Krebs cycle or how ATP happens, but that's it, right? Then you get into your real life with a bunch of debt and you're so excited to finally be the one in charge. Like you get to take care of people and you focus in on your quote unquote job, like whether it's a, you know, cardiologist, making sure you don't have high blood pressure or me, a breast surgeon, making sure there's no mass in there. And if there is to get it out, right on and on. And we work wherever there's no nine to five, like nine to nine. And then you go home and you want to be a wife and a mom or maybe work out yourself, et cetera. Well, who's going to sit down and pour over nutrition journals for some pearl of wisdom that they don't even think is there because if it were so darn important, it should have been told to me at some point in the decade prior. Right? So right. we go, we grow up to just be a hammer and a nail and we do what we do. And there's also, by the way, I have to say, there's no reward for preventive pearls of wisdom. There's no reimbursement. And we all have overhead and we have to make ends meet. So it, it just doesn't foster a lifestyle for the current physicians of our country to understand that there are preventive strategies available for every disease that they treat. Okay, so having said that, I do said deep dive because I needed to be right, right? Triple A girl, A plus, um, coming to uh, write this book, did not, did not want to be incorrect or wrong. So I literally have every single fact in my book backed with a scientific reference. Now, of course, we all know there can be counter papers and other opinions and views, but mine is not an opinion per se. I have references behind everything I say. So I went into the science simply to prove that I was right, that eating Mediterranean diet style, largely a lot of chicken, turkey, and fish. I hadn't had red meat since I was 10. I totally avoided carbohydrates, even the complex carbohydrates. So bread, pasta, rice, and potatoes out of my life. Since I was a 13 year old, because I grew up, I was a teen in the eighties, the early eighties. And believe me, you were a carbohydrate folk. So I stayed that way. And then was uh, like any good mother would be teaching my kids to be carbohydrate folks. So that particular day that we went vegan, I had taken the day off work to write and I was largely absent when I wrote that entire half year. So I thought I'd go downstairs and make their lunch for school. And I literally took an organic turkey breast, sliced processed meat turkey breast and rolled it up like a little cigarette and put five of those slices in their lunch, no bread. <laughs> and then I threw in some lettuce and tomatoes and went upstairs and immediately read 
the IARC ruling from July 2015, which I know you're familiar with, but basically you've got these 22 researchers from 10 different countries looking at 800 epidemiologic studies, literally just to answer the question, does red meat cause cancer? Does um, processed meat cause cancer? Those are two questions. And they came out and said, absolutely carcinogenic to all humans is all processed meat. So kind of know that bacon's not, probably not healthy, but bacon, sausage, hot dogs, okay, fine. But really, my sliced turkey breast that I just sent my three angels to school with is on the same list as tobacco, plutonium, and asbestos. So they came home. I heard them come down in the house. I run downstairs. I'm like, come here, boys, boys. We go to the fridge. I flung the doors open with characteristic flair and said, boys, we're going vegan. <laughs> they were like, yeah, what is vegan? So we emptied out, I kid you not, four bagfuls to the brim, paper bags to the brim with animal-based products from my non-fat Greek yogurt to my feta crumbles, a big salmon filet I had just bought. In the frozen section, I had organic veggie burgers, but there's cheese and milk in there that I wouldn't have suspected, you know, on and on. Four bags, bring it over to my 85-year-old parents who live a mile away. And we're like, here, it's too late for you. So... <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that, by the way. It's never too late for anybody. But my depression era parents would never speak to me again if they found out I threw all that perfectly good food away, perfectly carcinogenic food away. <laughs> that reminds me of when I said on Facebook about 10 years ago what I do with my kids' Halloween candy. Like I let them go out and have the ritual and they like get their pillowcase full of candy. And when they get home, I give them 20 bucks for it and I dump it in the trash. <laughs> and people, there was like people on Facebook who were like, why don't you take it to a homeless shelter? <laughs> so many people were saying that. They thought that was a horrible thing to say. And I'm like, why do I want to poison the homeless people? <laughs> right, exactly. That's funny. I know. Send it to our troops. There's that whole plan. I'm like, mm, can we send apples? So if you need a if you need a spirit guide as the boys head into teenager uh, land, um, give me a heads up. I totally be happy to help you. I would love to write a book just about like the transition of raising teenagers from your kids are in like the best stage. They're in latency phase phase where they're, I told you this when we were talking, um, when we were in Oregon that like right now they see their parents as, you know, their role models and they look to you and you're, but you know, they're heading into that phase where, you know, peers will be their main, um, lodestar and they'll just, they'll mostly just want to do what their peers do. But I love that you said, made the big pronouncement, we're going vegan when they were seven, because they were like, yay, this must be fun. And I bet, I bet Andy was right there with you on it. But it, the hilarious thing is I totally have this pretty famous video where I talk about um, how not to make a pronouncement if you have teenagers, like do not ever say we're going vegan or we're, <laughs> we're getting, you know, <laughs> I can see how that's true. I'm still going to have you on speed dial in three years time. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, at seven, yes, you can make an announcement. We're going vegan and they'll all like do the happy dance. But when they're 17, you don't make an announcement. We're going vegan. But um, but I love it. And by the way, there's a, there's a book by Michael Greger, just to your comment about carb fear, um, called Carbophobia. There's a new word for your vocabulary. Have you changed, have you changed your mind about carbohydrates? I'm not talking about the bread but like carbohydrates in general? Oh yeah, absolutely. So now all the 100% um, whole grains, so even breads. To be honest, the bread, so another thing, speaking of my hero, Gregor, I learned from him that if you take total carbohydrates and divide that number by the fiber, and if the number is five or less, that's a good one to choose. So that's important when you're doing a little bit of what I call cheat food, where it's packaged, so breads, right? And some uh, cereals. If you look at that, you'll be hard pressed to find a cereal that's going to be five or less and you don't taste, they taste like cardboard. But the breads are like the Ezekiel bread, Dave Tiller bread, and then all those um, German and like European little breads that you could stand on and they wouldn't move. <laughs> <laughs> those, they're all going to be five or less. So that's a nice guide for you. But yeah, potatoes, sweet potatoes, all the squashes. I mean, yeah, all the complex starches are back in my life and I'm loving it 
and not fatter for it. Yep. Yep. That's, that's the thing we, you know, we have to like unbrainwash you and I and all the people who grew up in the eighties thinking that like fat was going to kill us. And now we're going to have to unbrainwash all the people who think that carbohydrates are bad for them because of all the high fat lovers of this last decade. Okay. I have a, I have a totally sideways question for you because I'm worried that I'll forget to ask you this, but so I don't know if I told you I flew all over the world and studied at 20 different um, alternative uh, cancer treatment clinics. And they didn't all just treat um, cancer, but but cancer was a major focus or I wouldn't have gone there. So 20 different clinics all over the world. There's one of them that I go back to every year since I started that research project. And so I've been back like every year for eight years and I take some of my followers with me every year and would love to see you there sometime. It would be amazing. Several of the doctors told me, and I don't know of any like documentation of this, that people form probably detectable if we were constantly being, you know, getting MRIs or whatever, which obviously would be a bad idea. But if, if we were, we had just like some kind of magical body scanner, are, we ha- probably have detectable masses if we were, if we're being tested three to four times in a lifetime of cancerous tumors that the body actually break down, breaks down and metabolizes. And I just wonder what you think about that, because the whole point of it is not, not can you prove this or can you not prove this, but these doctors who treat cancer holistically feel that your body is constantly breaking down cancer. And when you have a cancer that actually makes you sick and is detectable enough that it like develops its own vascular system and you end up in a surgeon's office having a mastectomy or whatever. It's just that your immune system went down and this one got out of hand. Do you think that's possible that we are, we all have these masses and our bodies, amazing um, immune systems are actually breaking down cancerous tumors? Okay. I have a strong agree and disagree reaction to everything you just said, because the parts of it I think are undeniably true and actually already proven in some of the science and others, too much speculation. So the idea that you can call it five detectable tumors that could come and go throughout your life, there's no basis in published science for that. There's no like group of people who got a PET CT every year for 50 years straight and showed that fact. So we don't know that. And I will say, as you just said in passing, by the time a tumor is detectable, it's a pretty crafty villain. Like it has engineered its own blood system, right? Angiogenesis, new blood flow coming to it to feed and fuel it. And it's created a tumor microenvironment. It's bathing itself in all of the inflammation and free radical DNA damaging cells and um, high estrogen levels and IGF-1 growth hormones. It's bathing in this stuff at the time that it's now detected. So you're going to be hard put to reverse that process when it's been crafting its exit strategy to become a metastatic cancer for probably 10 years prior to that day that you detected it, right? So that's, if you live so well and just had a moment of immune system deficiency where it had to look the other way because of some emotional or other physical stressor, and now the cancer burst into appearance, that, again, that was a decade-long process. So you've been looking the other way for a while, I would suggest. So I think it's hard to reverse an established invasive cancer. We have proof, thanks to Dean Ornish, that you can reverse established in situ and early stage prostate cancer just by dietary and lifestyle changes, eating a vegan diet and some other healthy behaviors such as stress management, group support, and daily exercise. So yes, you can reverse cancer. The way I see it is a seed and soil phenomenon. So basically, a, a, better way, a better belief that I have is that we all have cancer cells flying around for basically all of the time, but there are single cells here and there trying to get that network of food and um, proliferation drivers that it requires in order to become a detectable mass. That, I think, we can create an immune system that is so expert at detecting and destroying those cells that you never get a detected cancer. Does that make sense? There's a big difference between five detectable cancers, then disappearing as you get healthier, then billions throughout your lifetime, billions of rogue single cells that your immune system, because you arm it, you equip it with the weapons of a healthy diet and lifestyle is able to seek and destroy those single cells. We know, for example, so if you take a 
one centimeter cube of invasive cancer in the, in the breast, it will send out 3.2 million cancer cells into your bloodstream every 24 hours. So if you think that through, why isn't every single woman who's diagnosed with breast cancer, invasive breast cancer, and there are 266,000 this year, why aren't they all diagnosed stage four? Or how come they're all not stage four by Christmas, right? And the answer is an intact immune system is scouring these rogue cells and getting rid of them with one pass through your body. And it's a, it's a hard task for a breast cancer cell to land in the liver and then make liver its happy home because it doesn't have its nutrients there now. It has to start again from one cell to two to four to eight and so on. So I think that the people that you were talking to are right, that we absolutely have the power to reverse existing malignant disease. But I don't think this idea of five detectable cancers coming and going throughout our lifetimes is accurate if we could have that crystal ball. I'm glad you mentioned that um, you feel like the cancer is there for 10 years before it's detected on average. Um, and I've heard other surgeons and in that research all over the world, um, the more holistic leaning doctors say seven or eight years. But I'm, I'm going to quote you on that because for me, what I do with that information is, so when you get diagnosed, take a minute, take a minute to look at your options, interview different doctors, consider what the path is you really want to take. Just because I've you know, talk to so many cancer patients, especially in that long research, three and a half year research junket that I did, um, who regretted the choices that they made because they felt like a gun was to their head and they just got this thing that's going to kill them. And, and of course, there's, re- you know, a cancer that, that's been there for 10 years can also start growing very rapidly. And, and, you know, the dynamics have changed. But what do you think about people who get this surgery and they say they got it all when their doctor says they got it all? Is there any such thing? And, and what about, you know, some, some holistic physicians say there is no such thing as stage one cancer. Do you have opinions on these things? Oh, yeah, there's such a thing as stage one cancer. And there's such a thing as we got it all. You just don't when you say that, you don't know until 30, 40, 50, 80 years later, when that person dies, and then if they got an autopsy, and there's nothing there, then you can say, emphatically, I got it all. But the truth is, stage one breast cancer, for example, has a 99% five-year survival rate. Doesn't mean they die year six. We just use these uh, barometers because it reflects, like if you're diagnosed today, your chances of you being alive in five years with a stage one breast cancer is 99%. That reflects current treatment strategies. If I tell you the 20-year survival rate, well, 20 years ago, we didn't even have Herceptin going on and the survival rate was way worse, right? So that's why we use these five-year things. But um, I absolutely think that you can cure early stage cancers. I don't think having rogue cells flying around in a bloodstream makes you stage four, right? That just means your immune system has some work to do. So those people might be what they might be referring to when they say like everybody's, what did they say exactly? What did you say? They're metastatic at diagnosis? Um, there's just some, some functional medicine doctors who feel like there's no such, there's no thing, there's no such thing as detecting somebody at stage one. It's always metastatic. You can always find it in other places in the body. We just, we just don't like, we don't have that kind of, you know, power to figure that out, but it's, it's just a, a theory that's out there. No, I think there are rogue cells flying around and with a good immune system and with, people who have room for improvement in their diet and lifestyle. And obviously the Western medicine pathway of not surgery, because that's just local to the initial plate, but this idea that they're seeing their cells out there, the chemotherapy and for breast, the anti-estrogen therapy that people are taking can also be agents that seek and destroy out those little guys hiding somewhere, trying to make a surprise appearance. There's one thing I do want to tell you. When your tumors get to a detectable size, they have created a number of cells that does change. Like you were saying, at the time of diagnosis, you have time. And I agree with you. Take a deep breath and you do have time to search out your ideal team so you don't make irreversible decisions you later regret. On the flip side, there's strong data, a 2016 analysis of all the U.S. cancer databases showed that in over 94,000 cancer patients, the five-year survival rates were 4.6% lower in those who waited over three months versus less than one month to to have their surgery. And interestingly, that was only seen in stages one and two, not stage three. So it's like stage three just 
it, you have more time to think. It's so backwards thinking, but if it's more advanced, you could take more time to think about it, presumably because your system's already pretty burdened with all the tumor cells. But in stages one and two, there was pretty significant difference in the, in the five-year survival rate. And then there was another subset of that, which was, um, wasn't a subset, it was women that were 18 and over. The other group was just uh, 66 and over. So the, the postmenopausal, 66 and over. The all comers, 115,000 women, 18 plus, the survival rate dropped 3% by waiting over three months versus less than one month for surgery. And again, only for early stages. So you have a solid four weeks if you have a stage one or two to make a decision about what your next step is. Beyond that, you should probably hurry up. Mm, interesting. Must be that one, by the time it's diagnosable, the, the cancer has some momentum. It's moving pretty fast, is all okay. I can think. You mentioned in a list of things that you know increase your risk, you mentioned hormone replacement therapy, and I wonder what you have to say about that. We've had several functional medicine docs on here, including my own, talking about bioidenticals versus the synthetics. I think you're probably talking about like estrogen, but tell us what you have to say about hormone replacement. Okay, so hormone replacement is, you just have to handle menopause very wisely and individually because people's risks are different. And we can't disregard that huge study from 2002 that came out from the Women's Health Initiative that took over 16,000 women, randomized them to placebo versus now it was Prempro. It was this drug that came from horse urine, right? Like that was the HRT that was being used. It was a combination of estrogen and progesterone. But that study was like as an emergency halted at 5.2 years because for ethical reasons, they couldn't continue. Why? There were 26% more breast cancers in the HRT versus placebo users, along with more heart attack, strokes, blood clots, and dementia. Now they had fewer colon cancers and fewer hip fractures, so there's some protective effect there. And in response to that, a whopping 33 million HRT prescriptions disappeared from the US between July and fall of 2002. Why, what happened to them? The study, the study came out. It got published that HRT was causing breast cancer and heart attacks and dementia. So they dropped the HRT completely from you know, millions of women. And the very next year, 2003, saw an unprecedented drop in breast cancer incidence by 7% just in that one year. And it was essentially all in postmenopausal estrogen-driven cancers. So that same year, 2003, the UK put out their 1.1 million women study, which followed that many women, and found a 66% increase in HRT use. So there's no doubt that HRT will increase breast cancer risk. But that was a combo of estrogen and progesterone, and that was not the plant-based bioidentical hormone use. So that then begs the next question of, like, well, what about estrogen only? And they had arms for those in both those two studies. And the estrogen only kind of factors out like this. Overall, if you just take estrogen replacement, the reason why you can do that, by the way, is only if you don't have a uterus. If you have a uterus and you take estrogen, you need progesterone so you don't get uterine cancer. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have a uterus because you had a hysterectomy and you take estrogen only, you will actually decrease your risk of breast cancer by 23%, but it went up 57% if you took that HRT in the first five years of being menopausal, which hello is when you're hot flashing your way to a divorce and need it, or if you took it for a total of more than 10 years. So it, it really isn't looking good for estrogen with or without a uterus, which leads us to the BHRT, the bioidentical hormone question. And I really want to say that my yummy soy and yams, which comprise a lot of the BHRT making, is going to be healthy for you. But the truth is, we just don't know. There are no randomized controlled trials that are looking at the, these BHRT substances that chemically match your naturally occurring steroids, including progesterone and estradiol and estrone and estriol. So, you know, we just don't have the studies there and they've been changed, right? We don't know if they reduce or surpass the problem we saw in that big 16,000 person study with the PremPro. And you know, whether they're compounded by a pharmacy or FDA approved, the BHRT 
is available in various dosages and combinations and preparations and routes of delivery. It could be a cream, it could be an insert, it could be a pill. And so we just don't know the differing effects on risk to an individual person. So to all of that, I say we then land again on the individual lady in front of me. What are her symptoms? Because a lot of people just say, you know what? It's just hot flashes. Like that's my thing, but I am miserable. And that's leading to insomnia because I wake up sopping wet and then now I'm tired all day and now I'm getting depressed and I'm losing. So it's really not just hot flashes, is it? Um, and those women should, I think, first try just a few other things that have been proven scientifically to help reduce hot flashes. So acupuncture, soy consumption, which is an extremely anti-carcinogenic, anti-estrogenic based food that will shock a lot of listeners probably because they hear the opposite about soy. Um, and uh, Menopause Miracle is my favorite. That's a three Asian herb blend that has three randomized controlled trials behind it against placebo. There are no um, bad side effects. And in over 90% of women, literally all 12 major symptoms of menopause improved to the point that they felt fine. So I think you told me Menopause Miracle is this blend. You were very excited about it. You're, you're bringing that over and you they can get it from you, can't they? They can. Yes. Yeah, so at pinklotus.com, our store Elements has that product and others that are all very high quality and where there's science behind them. We vetted all those products. Certain things like, you know, a comfortable post-operative bra that we sell isn't going to have science behind it. But um, yeah, we're really excited about our store. We've got a number of very um, functional products for women that help before, during, and after a breast cancer diagnosis that help take care of menopause symptoms like Menopause Miracle. We have a number of CBD infused uh, oils and sprays for both menopause side effects and chemotherapy side effects. We have our Cosmo Companion, which we should talk about alcohol, but for alcohol drinkers, that is a very smart supplement to take. And our multivitamin called Multi Must Have was engineered over a year of thought and work went into creating the perfect vitamin for women and also for people who largely or entirely eat whole food plant-based. Has extras of the things that we might lack as vegans. Okay. Yeah. So it's pinklotus.com is uh, Dr. Funk's website. Menopause Miracle is that uh, 12 herb blend that she is talking about. I thought that my readers would like to hear about that because, um, you know, what's funny is I told you that I went through menopause just overnight, instant menopause, had no symptoms, no hot flashes, nothing, never have had any um, at age 41. And you're the only person who's ever told me anything positive about that. You told me I have lower risk of breast cancer because of that. <laughs> you have 40% less breast cancer because of that. And you know, the reason why you were so asymptomatic, you are mirroring our Asian sisters in you know Japan and China still living a more uh, simpler life with less processed foods and meats and cheeses, etc. Right? They're eating a traditional Asian diet, they don't blink when they go through menopause. And that's largely because of all the plants and soy that they're consuming. Yeah. And I think mostly women don't talk about their menopause symptoms because there's a lot of weirdness about it and shame about it. And so is that in your book? Tell us a little bit about your book, Breast the Owner's Manual. Oh, so this book, it is in the book about menopause and symptoms and relief. And there's a lot of um, taboo topics that I bring up for especially living life after chemotherapy and cancer and things that, that have to do with a decreased libido and just a painful dry vagina and body image issues and how things affect you on so many levels from the physical, but it springs forth right into the mental and then fatigue and attitude and parenting and loving. It just all gets intertwined. But the majority of the book is actually really kind of fun and empowering. I go through what your breasts are all about because they're kind of these for two things perched on your chest front and center your entire life. Women know surprisingly little about these breasts of theirs. So I kind of give the 411 on breasts and then we talk about myths that people have surrounding all sorts of things from bras and breast size to cell phones and microwaves and underwire bras. And then we dive into food, what to eat, what not to eat, all the lifestyle behaviors that affect breast cancer risk. 
And then there's some meaty chapters at the end of the book on, okay, what imaging should I be doing? And if I get diagnosed, here are all the ways to treat and cure it. And then we kind of hone in on certain subsets of choices for you. And then living life after cancer. The paperback, which came out October 1st, 2019, has a bonus chapter, chapter 11, which is called Create a Cancer Kicking Life. And I'm really proud of this chapter because it puts it all together in a very actionable way. Really, the, the, I create this orchard of life, these nine trees that I believe every woman should plant in the orchard of her life to bring forth the most fruitful, bountiful existence she ever thought possible or imagined. And it is achievable and it's not difficult. And it's literally just a few drops of water at a time, tending to your life. And so that's also in the paperback book. I love the metaphor of the nine trees. Um, you've touched on a couple of things I want to get your Cliff's notes on. Um, first of all, bras. I sort of teased that in the beginning. So what do you think of Sydney Singer's research? Or do you think that there's a link of, I mean, to me, it seems sort of logical that if your breasts are bound up, like they really haven't been throughout history um, for like cosmetic reasons and just kind of our weirdness in North America that, you know, they have to be all bound up. It makes sense to me, logically, that your lymph is trapped for decades, 16, 18 hours a day or whatever. Is Does that predispose you to breast cancer? Do you think that's a, just a bunch of bunk? I think this has no grounding in breast anatomy or physiology. So it does initially sound super plausible to the point where I did my own deep dive for the book before I wrote. It, again, I never just used my ideas that had existed in my brain for 20 years of being a breast cancer surgeon. If I had, I would have told you to spit me so right out of your mouth because I incorrectly told the world to avoid the phytoestrogens and soy until I wrote the book. So similarly, I did really look at all the research on, on bras and I get the concerns, like you were just saying, this tight binding bra that might compress the lymphatic system of the breast, which leads to toxins building up within the breast tissue itself deleteriously altering the cells. But actually, we treat breast lymphedema, which is a surgical or radiation-induced blockage of lymphatic fluid in the breast that infrequently occurs, but occurs enough that I've seen it a bunch um, after surgery and radiation. We treat that with, among other things, breast compression to push the lymphatic fluid out of the breast and stop the buildup. So, and other smart uh, sounding hypotheses include the idea that the underwire itself conducts environmental electromagnetic fields. But even if that antenna theory were true, these non-ionizing EMFs that come from things like underwire bras or cell phones or microwaves are not strong enough to create DNA breakage. So basically, whatever you want to wear in terms of breast support, I support you with or without a wire without a bra. Okay. I was hoping you were going to tell me the fact that I hate wearing a bra and therefore I almost never do was going to help me with my breast cancer risk, but rats. No, it, it won't, but um, it, it will, um, it will make them sag faster. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's like, it's like when I hit my face with a tennis racket and split my lip open and Tony Yoon, our, our colleague, Tony Yoon, plastic surgeon and, um, volunteer to jump on a plane and fly and take care of it. And I was like, dude, I'm turning 50. Like I'm on the downhill slope. It doesn't matter anymore. Kind of like you taking the processed turkey to your parents. I'm like, it really doesn't matter what my face looks like right now. We're on the downhill slope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so beautiful. I didn't even notice your sewn up lip. Oh yeah. It's, I didn't get sewn up. That's the whole point. It was just like, eh, nah. I thought you just super glued it yourself, huh? <laughs> yeah, no, you couldn't. I looked into that and you couldn't. So I just, I just live with the scar. And it's like you said, you don't even notice. Who cares? Um, okay, so quickly, I want to just ask you a couple things. And I know that these are big topics, but we've had a few people on the show talking about uh, breast imaging and screening for breast cancer. Do you think that the reason mammography is in all of the oncologists' offices and many other doctors is because it's really the best imaging? Do you think that the risk and the exposure of radiation is worth it? Or do you think it's just what they invested in so they're sticking with it or some combination? Uh, combination, it is not by any means the best way to look at a breast. Like I can't believe 
that in this day and age where we hurtle through the air 10,000 miles above the ground at 500 miles an hour in a seated upright position that we can't look inside a breast and see what's in it or we can go to the moon or you know like how do we have all these technological advances and yet the breast is mysterious and we rely on imaging which is inaccurate 30% of the time um, so having said that though we have what we have and that's mammography ultrasound and breast MRI. I'm not a fan of thermography. And I think there's too much radiation exposure in some of these other modalities that are infrequently used anyway. So your listeners might not know about them, but it's like a PET scan for the breast, MIBI scan, or those things are available, um, but not widely. So what do I think? I think that this is what we have. And so we must use it. Mammography isn't bad at detecting cancer. It's just not as good as it should be. Here's the deal with the radiation exposure. If you screen 10,000 women every year from the ages of 40 to 74 years old with a mammogram, that radiation exposure will cause 8.6 cancers, but it will detect 860 cancers. So in other words, mammography finds 100 times the number of cancers that it causes. And there's nothing under the microscope about that radiation-induced cancer that declares itself, hi, I'm from your mammogram from, you know, 2022. So we don't actually, you won't be able to blame the mammogram on your particular cancer. But that's the pro and con. Odds are in your favor that you're being helped by the mammogram and not hurt. Now, societies differ all over the place as to when to start, when to stop, how often to get it every other year. Um, the American Society of Breast Surgeons has looked at all that data and I agree with them. It's basically a cost benefit analysis that makes people come up with differing recommendations. So there's a number of deaths from breast cancer per year that boards that include a lot more, don't even include breast cancer surgeons or oncologists. They are sociologists, epidemiologists, people looking at the bottom line and kind of making these recommendations in a impartial way without an individual woman or a particular practice in mind, right? So they tolerate, for example, if it takes 1900 mammograms to save one life, that's not worth it. So that is why they did, the US task force did stop the recommendation for mammals between 40 and 50 years old, because that would be the rate of saving a life. But when you start at 50, it takes about 1300 mammograms to save a life and in their computerized model or ways of thinking that was worth it so you have to realize that's how these recommendations get thrown out there it's just a small group of people who decide what's worth it and you can make that individual choice for yourself in my opinion i believe as is my the society i belong to that the most lives will be saved by doing mammograms every year from age 40 without stopping or skipping until you think you're going to die in the next five years. Okay, so you recommend annual mammograms. Annual mammograms for normal risk women starting at age 40. If you're dense breasted, which your mammogram will tell you, it's not just how you feel your breast feels to yourself, because most women think their breasts are dense because they're kind of firm and lumpy and confusing, but only 50% um, uh, of women zero will have dense breasts and those women the mammography is a little less accurate so you should combine that with screening ultrasound and there are new laws in place in most every state that would require insurance to pay for that screening ultrasound if you're dense breasted if you layer on top of density extra risk because of family history or having a gene mutation or personal other risk factors that elevate you over a 20 percent lifetime risk we would recommend breast mri I don't recommend it every year, except for people whose risk is 40% or greater, between 20 and 40%. I discuss it with the patient. They can certainly do it every year. I don't think that the gadolinium that's injected into your veins as an annual exposure is smart or safe. So we do it every other year, every three years, even every five, depending on what the woman wants to do. And what about trying to get around the need for a mammogram before an ultrasound and trying to get your ultrasound go straight to ultrasound. We have people bringing this up. So what do you think about that? If you've at least had one mammogram that shows your breast tissue is dense, you can ride on that 
into the ultrasounds indicated. Or you can just pay cash. I mean, there, you know, people pay cash. Ultrasound isn't prohibitively expensive for many people. So if your insurance denies it, you can just pay for the ultrasound. And do you think that going straight to an ultrasound gives you less exposure, uh, lower risk, but better imaging? No. Okay. The ultrasound is no risk. It's sound waves. So there's absolutely no detrimental effect. So that's awesome. But ultrasound alone will miss somewhere around 40% of cancers. And it will never, or almost next to never, find a stage zero in situ cancer, which is obviously the most curable and you never need chemo and rarely need a mastectomy. That is mostly detected by only a mammogram, not ultrasound, not my hands, not MRI, as clustered calcifications, little white flecks on your mammo that are growing or changing or brand new from your last one. So that's, that's a real critical thing that mammo, sets mammo apart from everything else, is finding stage zero cancer. I could then spend another chunk of time talking about, is it worth it? Do we really care if we have an inside you cancer? Is that ever going to grow to the point where it causes your death? Because overdiagnosis and overtreatment is a massive problem in the breast cancer space. Yeah, it seems like it's a massive problem. And at least now they're not um, calling some of those in situ cancers cancer, right? They're like allowing for the fact that they may be metabolized by the body and not so much um, mastectomies of stage zero and stage one breast cancer now. That seems like a less invasive step the right direction. Or what do you think about that? Yeah, for sure. There was a fascinating study that I came across from like 2015 where they had about 850 breasts in autopsy women. So they died from like a car accident or something and they were never diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetimes. Okay. This is shocking. In the women between 40 and 50 years old, 39% of the breasts had DCIS. And in the women who were 50 to 70 years old, 10% had DCIS. So where did it all go? Like 75% of the DCIS disappeared. And I think the critical age gap there is that we humped over the age of 50. So we're now pre versus post menopausal. And something in the change in the hormonal milieu in your body is going to allow your immune system, I guess, to identify and destroy these in situ cells. Or you stop feeding it and fueling it with the so 80% of all breast cancer, by the way, is fed and fueled by estrogen. So if you cross over into menopause and don't supplement with estrogen, then that existing estrogen-driven DCIS will fizzle out and die without its cancer fuel. Yeah. So what I want to point out about that study, because um, Chris Work, our mutual friend, Chris Work, told me about that study a couple of years ago. And I think it's fascinating. Like, I think the age group you said 40 to what? 40 to 50, 39%. Let's just, let's just like put a pin in that for a second. I hope you understood what she was saying, because she's talking really quickly about an important study where they're looking at like car accident victims. Or people who died of yeah of some kind of accident, I believe, is what it was. And did y'all get that? That 39% of them between the age of 40 and 50 had what cancer uh, industry would call in situ cancer. 39% of them had that, which that actually is what gives rise to a lot of my curiosity about, do we often have cancer that we're just metabolizing? And which also gives rise to that whole conversation that we won't go down that rabbit hole, but the whole overtreatment thing. Like, I just often wonder, like, the body is metabolizing cancer all the time. Oh, it absolutely is. So basically, you've got normal cells humming along happily, right? And all of a sudden, in a matter of days, what was normal becomes mutated by the sun's UV rays, by cigarette smoke, by carcinogenic food, uh, aka animal products. And this mutated cell transforms into a seed. So whether or not that seed takes root and becomes a full-blown cancer capable of destroying your life depends on the soil in which the seed lands. And that soil you have control over, whether it will help the seed flourish or fail, right? So the one thing we, we didn't talk about is that the cellular response, what actually happens when you chew and swallow a piece of chicken or a chunk of cheese? And what happens inside of you without any more help from you is that estrogen levels skyrocket. IGF-1, which is the biggest growth promoter of every cell in your body, IGF-1 skyrockets, inflammation abounds, angiogenesis is stoked. We talked about that, new blood vessel formation, and your immune system gets hit. So when your theory of, you know, we all have cancer and it's all flying around, it's absolutely true. 
So when you eat animal products, your immune system, your cancer seeker and destroyer is taking a hit. It's too busy with the oxidative stress you've just caused inside your body to let the antioxidants that you've also consumed in smaller or greater quantity to do their thing. The antioxidants are too busy taking care of the oxidative reaction that the animal food just caused. So I think just quickly, because this is such a brilliant, beautiful study, and if you've never heard this one, Robin, you'll never forget it. They took 100 people and they gave them a standard American diet for breakfast. So steak and eggs, pancakes and bacon, and they measured oxidized cholesterol, LDL levels hourly as a measure of the oxidative stress response to that meal. Up, 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 lunch hamburger and fries, up, 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 dinner. Okay, so these people are going to bed every single night with fewer antioxidants than when they woke up. Your body can only take that for so many decades until finally whatever gets hit the most becomes your killer. So if it's your arteries, heart attacks and strokes and Alzheimer's, if it's your pancreas, burned out and diabetes, if it's your breast can cell, breast cancer, right? So here's the beauty of the study. Next day, same people, same sad meal with one change, a cup of strawberries. Up, up, down, down, baseline. Hamburger and fries, one cup of strawberries. Up, up, down, down. What? Like just the antioxidant capacity of a cup of strawberries, which had to deal with battling the oxidative stress of that bad meal, was able to completely neutralize it in a matter of hours to get you ready for your next meal. But what if the meal had been steel-cut oats and a bunch of berries? What if the lunch had been a gorgeous big salad with a ton of lentils and sunflower seeds, et cetera? Then it would take a very short moment for the oxidative stress that even plants cause inside of you to get neutralized. And those nutrients in the food get absorbed inside your bloodstream, go coursing through your veins, saturating every single cell, including rogue cancer cells or a little tiny wad of cancer in that liver that no one's found yet. And it does everything opposite. Anti-IGF-1, anti-estrogen, anti-angiogenesis, anti-inflammation, seeking and destroying out these cells or nourishing your good cells. It sounds like it could be false, but it's proven in people, in people with debilitating coronary artery disease, wheelchair bound with oxygen in their noses. If they would just get rid of the animals and eat plants and exercise daily and decrease their stress, these blocked arteries open wide open again. I mean, Dean Ornish showed with angiographic perfect picture proof, July 21st, 1990, the Lancet, most reputable journal in the world that you can reverse coronary the number one killer of you and everybody you love we don't need to die from coronary artery disease and yet that big revelation was like thud and forgotten i went to med school two years later i never heard a thing about that study until i wrote my book interesting and and if you go back and listen to everything that dr funk just said about what happens um, via that study that you were talking about. These are mechanisms of action that she's talking about related to eating meat and different animal products, cheese and flesh, that don't have anything to do with whether they are grass-fed or organic or free-range. And I'm not saying that that doesn't help. I'm just saying those mechanisms of action she listed happen regardless of there being higher quality animal products. So it's clear to me from, I didn't actually even know that study, but from thousands of studies that the vast majority of us need to eat less animal products and more plants. So I'm really glad you're out there talking about it because it's so unusual to hear it from a uh, breast surgeon. And I'm just really grateful that you're out there being brave and speaking up about it, publishing your book. We've talked about your book, but I know you also to close on this, you, you should talk about your live event coming up. And I know that you're going to choose 10 winners from my audience to get the live stream of your live event that's happening next April. So tell everybody where they can follow you, where they can get more information, remind them of your website. And what about that live stream opportunity for next April? Thank you, Robin. Yes, everybody. I'm so excited. So please follow me at Dr. Christy Funk, D-R-K-R-I-S-T-I, Funk as in 
F is in Frank, uh, UNK. So Dr. Christy Funk, and the website is pinklotus.com. If you just go to the homepage, you'll see all the things we offer. We've got our breath center, our free foundation for low-income uninsured women, our amazing store with products that will change your life, and our power-up community, which is filled with blogs and education and socialization opportunities within the website there with um, breast buddies who help counsel and encourage newly diagnosed women from the viewpoint of someone who's been there, done that. And we've got Facebook profiles and you can sell by trade your old scarves and hats on our breastless um, platform. So please check out Power Up and join us there. The summit, the Cancer Kicking Summit is coming in April 2020. And I am so excited about this. We are going to do a deep dive into the soil of your life and really take a good hard look in an exciting high energy way at how you think and how you love and how you learn and what you believe and are you meditating are you moving enough what are you eating what are you not eating are you fasting are you giving back to those you love and to the world in general because those are the key factors to living the most cancer-free most energetic most loving and wonderful life that you ever could create for yourself so join me there and i am excited to give away 10 free live streaming passes to your listeners robin sign up at pinklotus.com forward slash summit okay wonderful well thank you so much it's been really fascinating and um thanks for coming on the vibe show dr christy funk thank you robin 